disclaimer. In this story, we will be discussing the torture, sexual assaults, and murder of multiple people. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning, so please do not listen if you're sensitive to this topic. Hey guys, today I am going to tell you a story that feeds off of the last chapter about Richard Ramirez. Or rather, Richard Ramirez's story kind of feeds off of this one. You see, this is the story of his older cousin, Miguel Mike Ramirez. I will be referring to him as Mike. (laughs) I'm just, uh... Interesting. Okay. I'm looking forward to the details of this guy because for the last say 30 years, I've known about Mike Ramirez and about his influence, but it never even occurred to me to look into his time in Vietnam or his history. So this is exciting and interesting to me. Right? And honestly, it's really hard to find information on Mike. And that that's, it, it's so true. He has been buried by his infamous cousin. And honestly, his body count is probably double to triple wow really yeah so it's just mind-boggling and it gets way more sadistic wow way more sadistic let's get into it you're totally into it i love it let's do it i'm just so upset (laughs) so mike was 11 years older than richard and got his start as a sick twisted murderer when he went off to war in vietnam He was pretty ticked off when he got drafted to go to war, and some say this is what sparked the fire inside of him to start taking his anger out on civilians in Vietnam. Was it just women, or...? So he would have had the power to torture any prisoner, so really he could have done anybody wrong. But specifically... Polaroids that he brought back to show Richard are very much the torture, abuse, and mutilation of women. And I feel like I don't know a whole lot of specifics about the Vietnam War, but everything that I learned in school and even as an adult, you hear about some of the brutality and the things soldiers were doing over there. Um, I don't know if you get into any kind of drug abuse over there, but the use of um, opiates. Mm-hmm. was rampant there from soldiers conditions were horrendous and uh it basically brought out the worst of the worst of some of these men and boys you know like i said it's very hard to find information about him so finding out if he had a drug problem or anything like that would be next to impossible and i'd like to point out who knows what he did before going off to war But I'm assuming that his evil lived inside of him even before going to Vietnam. And I can't imagine an easier way for a sadistic POS to live out his fantasies and let his evil streak take over than going off to combat. Yeah, and get away with it. And get away with it, exactly. Mike was a Green Beret. For those of you who don't know what a Green Beret is, they are special forces in the army And the definition reads as follows. The Army's Special Forces soldiers, known as Green Berets, are military legends for service members and civilians alike. 
They take on terrorists through quiet, guerrilla, war-style missions in foreign countries. Green Beret teams operate in any environment from city fighting to jungle warfare to desert scouting. Now, I thought this was very interesting. While I was doing my research on Green Berets, right underneath the information about it was information on SOAR. Do you know what that is? No. So, again, like right on like the military sites and everything, it's right below Green Beret and SOAR, which is also called the Night Stalkers, which I thought was really weird. It is. It, that is such a coincidence. I know. Disturbing. So yeah, moving on. Mike used his newfound power, if you will, to wreak havoc on Vietnam civilians. And I would like to mention that, again, it's really hard to find the information on Mike. Some people put it that he was doing so to prisoners. and then But other things I read was that he was going into civilians' homes, dragging them out of their homes, and then doing the things that I will get into right now. This is starting to sound to me and remind me of a movie, and I, I don't think that it's advertised as based on a true story, based on true events, but it's one of my favorite wartime movies. It's called uh, Casualties of War. Mm. It's got um, Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn in it, and it's such a brutal movie, but these, so far, this is what this sounds like. Interesting. And I'll, I'll loan it to you if you want to watch it. It's yeah. a really good movie, but this is... Yeah, continue, but mm-hmm. I mean... The parallels so far are pretty interesting, for sure. Yeah, you'll have to tell me if uh, the parallels continue on. Um, Because, yeah, I've never heard of that movie. So he would break into their homes and steal from them. And after that, it quickly led to crimes much, much worse. At first, it started with looting, for lack of a better term. Stealing. He was stealing from them. But to them, they were looting. They were looting civilians' houses for a war away from their own home. Mm -hmm. He started to pull women from their homes, and he would bind them to trees. These women would be terrified and completely unable to fight back or move, and he would brutally torture them. This included raping the women several times and beating them. And just to make it a little worse, he would take photos of them throughout the torture and even after he had killed them. Once he was done torturing these people, he would decapitate them. He didn't just decapitate them because an idea popped into his head or something. He was an absolute horrible person who had heard that some people in Vietnam had a superstition that if they lost a body part, they would not go to heaven. He wanted to cause as much pain and suffering during his crimes as humanly possible. Not that I want to refer to anything that he did as human, because this dude is obviously a disgusting animal who received praise despite his horrible crimes, and we will get into that. That's right, I said praise. So I wonder if, and there's no way we're ever going to know, but I wonder what... um as he's telling Richard Ramirez about all of his escapades in Vietnam, I wonder if he was giving him some kind of almost spiritual guidance, like um, the more brutal you are, 
um, mm-hmm. the higher standing you have. Do you know what I mean? Like, where- And he was. And, you know, there is a list out there that explains exactly what Mike passed down to Richard. Really? And that's a part of it. As well as the godlike feeling to committing these crimes and doing these things to women. And taking life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it, it happened right in front of Richard. Do these things you know, murder your wife, which is where we're going with what Mike did. He murdered his wife. In Do these front things. Of Richard, yeah. And in front of his own children, might I add. The guy was a monster. Yeah, and you do all that, and guess what? It's not going to change anything, and people look up to you. You're a hero. Let's get into it. <laughs> no, because there's no, there's no one holding him accountable, probably. Nobody really... It's the opposite is the issue. It's not that nobody's holding him accountable. People are going, you're amazing. You're so brave. And like, I'll tell you why they think those things in this story as well. But, you know, it kind of feeds into when somebody is a veteran. Real time, though, I don't know that if if people around him knew that he was raping, torturing, dismembering, and killing civilians, innocent civilians over there, that that was the mindset. Oh, well, he's just been through a lot. It I think, was. I think the PTSD that veterans and the mental health of veterans that's coming out now that has been for the last 20 years or so is more so just recognizing the impact that what they did during war times, they bring back with them. And most most veterans are trying to live normal lives. And totally, but the this things isn't that they've seen has... That. No, but I'm just saying, I don't but think real time while he's doing those things, people aren't excusing it. They are. And I'm going to get into it. It's crazy. Um, They do. They are. They find him not guilty because they find sympathy because he's a vet. Crazy. Right? <laughs> so we'll get into it. We really will. Once he was done torturing these people, though, he would decapitate them, like I said. So after decapitating his victims, he would take more photos and it didn't even end there. He would then shrink their heads. Shrink their heads. Shrink them. Sounds uh, sounds very Beetlejuice. I was going to say that. like I was going to write it in and then I backtracked it. I went, maybe I shouldn't refer to this horrific crime as Beetlejuice. But that's what I thought, too. So if you thought that, other people probably think it, too. And I thought to myself, how does he do that? Obviously, he doesn't sprinkle a little dust, right? And also, there's a scene in the Pirates of Caribbean Mm. where Jack Sparrow's mother's head is shrunk. And his dad wears it as, like, a necklace pendant. Messed up. Yeah. So how or why? Well, to shrink their heads and... I know that we usually don't give another trigger warning, but like this is your trigger warning again. I'm going to go into the process of shrinking a human head. Wow. Okay. Get your notepads. No, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) To shrink their heads, first he would have to separate the hair and skin from the skull. Then he would sew the eyes shut and use a peg to hold or stick the mouth shut. And then... For the actual shrinking, the head would be put into a large pot and boiled for a certain amount of time. Once removed from the pot, the head would be about one-third its original size and the skin dark and rubbery. 
the skin would then be turned inside out and any leftover flesh scraped off with a knife. Oh, the scraped skin was then turned with... The scraped skin was then turned with the proper side out again and the slit in the rear sewn together. The process wasn't done yet. The head was shrunk even further by inserting hot stones and sand to make it contract from the inside. This also, quote unquote, tanned the inside, like tanning an animal hide in order to preserve it. Wow. Still not done. (laughs) Once the head reached the desired size and was full of small stones and sand, more hot stones would be applied to the outside of the face to seal and shape the features. The skin was rubbed with charcoal ash to darken it, and as tribesmen believed, to keep the avenging soul from seeping out. So just another sadistic, almost like religious way of torturing these people even further. Um, The finished product... I don't want to put it that way, but that's the, like, obviously I don't know how to shrink a head and this is coming from the researched how, like, how he did it. Yeah. Yeah, And what it says is the finished product was hung over a fire to harden and blacken. And I really just don't want to say the finished product. That's horrible. But it said, then the wooden pegs in the lips were pulled out and replaced with string to lash them together. It doesn't end there. (laughs) He then used the heads as pillows while in Vietnam. No one knows exactly how many people he killed in Vietnam, but he had a confirmed 29 kills. And when he went back to America, he had eight shrunken heads with him in tow. So I guess customs wasn't a thing back then. I mean, I <sighs> guess not. Or I maybe... hard enough time traveling with like a bottle of Diet Coke. I, like, I don't... I Maybe he's... The, I mean... They're fake. That's, I guess, all he would have really had to say, too. Souvenirs. Oh, God. Mind you, he's on military flights, I suppose. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And now, allegedly, his commanders knew about his twisted crimes in Vietnam. And apparently, they referred to his acts as a dark coping mechanism. Yeah, right. And I'd like to believe that that's not true. Like, honestly, I hope that his commanders didn't know. Because, like, to explain it away as a dark coping mechanism is just really sad, I guess. It's just a really horrible thing to think of to me. Like, I get it. Like, I don't know what it's like to be in war, but I can assure you that, no, I would not do that. No matter how traumatized I got. And many, many, many soldiers did not do anything like that. Totally. And I'm sure they thought that people who did that were fucking sick. Yep. Though, again... Why the hell would his commanders not do anything? Whatever. Even with them knowing, he received multiple medals. He won the National Defense Medal, Vietnam Service Medal with two Bronze Service Stars, Purple Heart Medal, Republic of Vietnam Medal, Good Conduct... (laughs) Sorry, Good Conduct Medal, which is just really funny, and two Bronze Loops. He had his medals and was considered a hero as... At one point, his platoon of 20 men were surrounded by the enemy, and Mike and another soldier were the only two to make it out alive. So, it was kind of like one of those, like, stories that happened 
while they were away in combat, you know, two people came back. They were the heroes. Once he was back in America, going back to life before his disgusting crimes was likely really hard to say the least. Richard slash the Night Stalker was 12 years old when Mike actually came back. And this is when Mike showed Richard his Polaroids of his horrible crimes, including images of him raping and decapitating women. Betcha. He showed the heads to him probably yeah. too. Betcha. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think a really important thing to quickly just point out is that the Night Stalker, Richard, had a horrible opportunity at life with these people around being the ones to influence him. Um, and specifically, Mike taught Richard jungle warfare. So how to be invisible, how to kill with stealth, and how to steal from homes without getting caught. Mike told Richard, it's us, the poor and downtrodden, against them, the rich and influential. So again, he was very much telling Richard things that stuck. It's us against them. Yeah. And weird, I don't... Most of the homes that Richard burglarized and committed his murders in were middle to upper class in Burbank. And yeah, so... Even middle, like, yeah. they weren't even middle, so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it can, of course, be assumed that his young cousin, so Richard, used these techniques when he became the Night Stalker in L.A. and would break into people's homes um, in all of those neighborhoods whilst under the cover of darkness and dressed in all black. Also, after Mike returned, he met and married a woman named Jesse, and they had two sons together. Again, it's almost impossible to confirm all of this, so this is truly a story today. Um, so I'm still going to include it because who knows? And another very important tidbit is that Mike received no counseling when he returned home from the war, and... When he came back, he had no sense of direction in life. All he wanted to do was drive around in his car all day, telling his young cousin plenty of gruesome war stories whilst they both smoked pot. Uh, I guess his wife worked, did the cleaning, raised the kids, and he still just wanted to sit on his ass. That's uh, relatable. <laughs> relatable. <laughs> When 13-year-old Richard, so a year or so later from when Mike came back from war, went to visit Mike at his apartment, he witnessed his cousin raise a pistol and shoot Jesse in the face at point-blank range. It was the first time Richard had ever seen someone killed right in front of him. Mike warned Richard not to tell anyone he had been a witness to the murder. Again, just some more information that may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Richard... And Mike were sitting at the table, smoking pot, having a good old time. Allegedly, Jesse came home from work, was like, you're just sitting there doing nothing. I think she, the story I heard, she had her arms full of groceries and he wouldn't get up to help her. Yeah. And then that actually led into her kind of doing what we do, which is being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Are you just going to sit there yeah. and do nothing all day and smoke weed here? little cousin like you're a loser and apparently she wouldn't stop apparently he told her to stop apparently he warned her stop 
I heard that uh, he raised the gun and pointed it at her. He got up to, he had already put the gun in the fridge. Right, right, right. Got up, to the, went to the fridge, grabbed the gun, told her again, stop. She was like, fuck you. He raised the gun up. I think that what I heard is uh, she said, I dare you, go ahead. I yeah, 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 you. I've seen that too. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, she must have trusted him, which really sucks. She really thought that she was having a normal argument with, you know, her husband, the way yeah. that we all do. Do it. Do it, I dare you. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, if somebody ever pointed a gun at me. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't it's be a daring him. I mean, my significant other would never do that. Oh, for sure. So I can't even you put myself in those shoes. You have somebody that would, you know, do that. You probably shouldn't get yeah. to that point. Yeah, because I think in my head, my wife, as she is, if she pointed a gun at me, I'd be like, put it down, pussy. But like, if somebody else does it, it's a but completely it a different story. Yeah, it would be a squirt gun filled with juice. Yeah. <laughs> Not even water. Um the highly concentrated juice and sting your eyes. Yeah. That's the way she would think. Ah, it burns. Um, so really, really horrible. And Richard witnessed that, and obviously it really affected him. Um, and that's when Mike told him, don't tell anyone what happened. But it wasn't long after that Mike was arrested and sent to jail. Later at his trial, the jury was sympathetic because Mike was considered a war hero, so they found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was committed to a mental institution. But not for long enough, in my opinion. Four years, I think, he served. Which is nothing. (laughs) Um, And so going back to him killing his wife, Julian Ramirez, which is Richard's father... He actually went to the apartment where Jesse had been killed to clean up the blood and he took Richard along with him. There are two different stories to this. One is that Julian's wife sent him there to collect jewelry and stuff like that so that it didn't get seized. And others say and claim that he cleaned up blood while he was there as well. And Richard was in tow. Richard watched everything. Wow. I'd believe it because, again, Richard turned out pretty messed up, and seeing your dad clean up your cousin's mess sounds yeah. like another thing that would influence add you. A tick. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, although Richard's parents didn't know that he had actually been there when the murder happened, they did take him back to the scene of the crime to help loot the victim's home, Basically. is the way I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was another huge turning point in young Richard's life. He said, That day I went back to that apartment, it was like some kind of mystical experience. You could smell the dried blood. I looked at the place where Jesse had fallen and died and got this kind of tingly feeling. And some say he meant that he was like turned on by that. Like that's Hmm. what he was trying to say. The full picture of the deadly influence Cousin Mike had on young Richard's life is quite clear to see. He has embedded in his young and impressionable mind these following obvious things. Who knows what else? Brutality and violence is okay if it's considered duty. And later Richard believed it was his duty as a follower of Satan to carry out these murders. Rape, torture, mutilation, and murder gives you a 
godlike feeling. Keep dark secrets and inner thoughts to yourself. And it's the poor versus the rich. So following the murder of Jesse, Richard should have sought counseling for what he had seen, just like Mike should have received counseling from war. At least maybe that would have saved one person's life here, and that would have been Jesse. And with Mike now institutionalized, there is still a good chance that Richard could have made his way back onto the straight and narrow. Maybe not that street, but maybe just not Night Stalker level. Yeah. Yet, this obviously was not the case because the Night Stalker is a thing. And he will always be remembered for the terror, evil, and paranoia that he spread around L.A. Jumping ahead, after a few years, Mike was out and able to go on living his life like a normal human that hadn't murdered 30 plus people. He went to work for the Texas Workforce Veterans Services in San Antonio, and by all accounts, seems to have lived a normal life after that. A great point to make is that even if he did do anything else, it's literally impossible to find it because, like I said throughout the story, it's impossible to find information on Mike because when you search for Mike Ramirez, it's just linked to Richard and his story. Yep. What we can confirm, though, is Mike passed away in April of 1995 at the age of 47. And crazily enough, the army gave him a hero's burial. Wow. Which is just messed up, in my opinion. Like, again, he killed his wife. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, mine too. I wonder... Like, the what's it called? Like, the 22 salute or 27 salute? Like, they did all of it. 21 gun salute? Yeah, they did that. They did everything for him. I wonder... During Mike's life, obviously he was alive when Richard Ramirez was caught. I wonder if anybody ever spoke to him, like interviewed him about his influence on Richard. They must not have because it's impossible to find. When I tell you, I went through, so I searched Mike Ramirez on YouTube and I went through every single video that Mm -hmm. popped up until it was starting to get to like... Obviously, people who made a YouTube channel back in 2010 and just upload lyrics to a video or something like that, Mm -hmm. not a thing could be found. Not one video made of just Mike Ramirez. I can like I found it very challenging to get accurate information on Kagan Klein too, Mm -hmm. because his his name is so entwined in the Delphi stuff, even though officially it's not connected. It's so hard to find just information on Kagan Klein's history. Yeah. It's just... It's buried is what it is, right? And because of that, that's really all I have on this story um, about the not-as-well-known Ramirez who had a kill count that was likely twice as high or even more than that than his more infamous cousin, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. To end it off, this is a quote that Mike told Richard. Having power over life and death was a high, an incredible rush. It was godlike. You controlled who to live and who died. Creepy. We're going to close the book on this one fully. I do not foresee any information ever, ever coming out on this guy because it's just not there. So yeah, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow.
You can also find us on Facebook at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Story Podcast, and if you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you in the next chapter. Bye. Bye.